Welcome to the Tactics Meeting. Today on the program, I have Barry McFarland, who served as the responsible party incident commander during the Costco Busan oil spill in San Francisco Bay. He's a good friend of mine, a mentor of mine. We sat next to each other for a hundred plus days in the on water recovery group in Homa, Louisiana during Deepwater Horizon. Uh, Barry McFarland, welcome to the program. Dan, uh, it's a pleasure and uh, my feelings for you uh, mirror what you just said about me. So it's great to um, to be on. I, I just want to make one quick statement. Of course, my my appearance here and anything that I say it has nothing to do with my current employment. Um, this, uh, as you know, the, the spill happened back in 2007, so it's a little bit removed. Um, but uh, with that said, uh, thanks very much. Barry, this is a great story. I remember when this happened, I was a supervisor with uh, MSRC. I was actually in Anacortes, Washington at a Tesoro tabletop exercise when my boss, Denny Quirk, came up to me and said, how soon can you be ready to go to San Francisco? And uh, walked in to the then command post on uh, Fort Mason, the old fire hall there, barely enough space to, to turn around, and you were there running the show. But the interesting part is really right in the beginning. So where were you when the, you first got the word that this ship had collided with the Bay Bridge? Yeah, the, the beginning is always uh, the most interesting, right? Um, so like you, I was at a tabletop exercise uh, in Ventura, California, um, and uh, got kind of almost instantaneous calls, both from, from MSRC, actually from Barry Keevan, who was then the uh, regional response manager for California for MSRC, uh, who had been called by the pilot on board the ship. And then also from, at the time, of course, I did work for O'Brien's Oil Pollution Group. And uh, so our command center was in Slidell, Louisiana. We, they had gotten a call from the ship, made the initial required regulatory notifications, and then called me, which I was the uh, the lead West Coast QI at the time. Um, so yeah, like you, I was at a drill uh, with another client, uh, had to step outside and take some phone calls, huddle with a couple folks, both from my team and, and the MSRC team um, on a um, on a 55 gallon poly drum, I think outside of a building <laughs> with a tear off piece of post-it note uh, flip chart to start making notes on. So that was how it started for us. Um, I ended up uh, driving actually to, uh, to Alameda that afternoon because uh, one, the Oakland airport was fogged in um, which if you, if you know anything, and we'll probably get into at the time of the incident, there was very heavy fog in the Bay area. So not knowing if we would be able to get flights in and then driving from Ventura back into Los Angeles and then turning around and trying to fly to, uh, either San Francisco, Oakland or San Jose, um, was a challenge. So I just turned the closest direction and, and started driving. Yeah. So the fog was the one of the larger contributing factors that ship was coming out of the oakland ship canal headed for the delta echo span on the bay bridge and uh, oops uh, didn't didn't quite make it if, if people are interested in the lead up to the accident it, to the elision itself the national transportation safety board report 
is well worth downloading and reading. But right, af right after that, we started in what is often a huge problem in oil spill response. I mean, oil spill response is complicated and it's made more complicated when you don't know how much oil has been spilled or what has really happened. And this is one of those cases where we got some, some pretty erroneous information up front. What were you told when you first got that call as the QI? Yeah, on the volumes, uh, of course, what we the first numbers that I heard were, were from actually from Barry Keeman at MSRC because he had actually spoken to the ship's pilot, the relief pilot that was sent to the ship <clears throat> immediately after the elision to relieve the pilot that was on board when the elision occurred. That's standard ops for most pilotages. So the arriving pilot came by pilot boat, the ship was at anchor. And what he saw, of course, was this large gash in the side of this huge container ship, which ended up being a little over 200 feet long and I think 10 feet wide. Uh, and it did breach two bunker tanks and a, and a water tank. Um, but at the time, uh, he didn't see anything flowing out of the gash because, um, to use the term of the, the U.S. Coast Guard uh, in their analysis for the Marine Safety Center, when asked how quickly the release happened, I think their formal answer was wicked fast. <laughs> was, was the guy from Maine? <laughs> <laughs> very well, very well could have been, but it was, uh, you know, their, their answer was, you know, all the oil left the ship almost immediately. Um, as you could imagine, a 200 foot by 10 foot gash that was eight foot, eight feet deep into the double hull of the ship. So, um, or the single, sorry, the single hole inside, but, uh, yeah, so when the pilot arrived, he didn't see much in the water because of the currents. Obviously, the ship's at anchor. And, and actually, the ship and the oil went in two different directions initially because of the course of the ship and where it was then sent to anchorage and then the prevailing currents at the time. So there was no oil around the vessel. So his guess was 10 barrels, which, you know, uh, folks typically report those kind of numbers and they've, they've typically never seen oil on the water to speak of to begin with. So that was the initial, the initial answer we got was 10 barrels. So at the time, um, if you rewind it now, at the time, of course, one of our bigger concern was structural integrity of the bridge. You know, how bad could this incident really get? You know, how bad was the bridge damaged? Where was all this fendering floating around? So, you know, regardless of the oil spill, we had a marine casualty that was going to be pretty serious. Um, that would require, you know, our support either way. Um, so the 10 barrel number, of course, ended up to be just someone's wild guess based on no real solid information. And I think that's not atypical of what you have in those first few minutes to hours of a response when you have oil on the water that's immediately dispersed and, uh, and people give you wild numbers um, because they think that's what they have to do. Um, so that was the first number I heard. Um, there was a number the Coast Guard put out in their very first press conference um, as I was on the road. And I want to say it was roughly 140 gallons. Uh, that number, in fact, uh, we can get into it later, um, came from a misunderstanding with the ship. And, uh, and I never heard that, in fact, until day two. And when asked, uh, I was shocked. I had never, never heard that number. But uh, so those are the two initial numbers. You know, one was 10 barrels, and then one was as little as 140 gallons. That evening, of course, 
once the state of California um, oil spill inspector went on board, he was a former uh, mariner himself, spent a lot of time with the crew and the engineering department um, and worked through the language barrier. It was a Chinese national crew on board. Um, he did some pretty good soundings and they came up with this roughly 54 to 58,000 gallon number, um, which is roughly 1200 barrels, 1250 barrels. Um, so there, that's where some of the discrepancies came from. Probably the most glaring discrepancy came from the fact that when the initial Coast Guard boarding party came on board, um, those uh, inspectors, one, had a language barrier with the crew, uh, and then two, misunderstood some of that information. And without a clear mental picture of what different units of measure mean in your head, it's easy to get confused. Now having possibly heard this from an NTSB inspector that I may or may not have talked to. One of the, uh, one of the issues that happened with the boarding party was that the, the chief engineer kept telling them that the spill came from the number four port bunker tank and which he referred to as four port because he was speaking in broken English. And of course, as you know, most languages, have some discrepancy from English with the nouns and modifiers, adjectives. So a lot of times when you do a strict translation, you reverse order of words. So normally we would say port, you know, for port, he was saying port four. The Coast Guard guys thought he was saying point four and thought he was referring to the volume that was lost and understanding and knowing that they normally talk in metric tons, their number that they ran with was 0.4 metric tons. Without having your conversion book in your back pocket, you write that down. Without having a mental picture of what 0.4 metric tons looks like, um, you don't question that. Once they got back to the Coast Guard station on um, on the Yerba Buena Island, got to their office, got out their conversion books, that became 140 something gallons. Obviously a metric ton is not a lot of oil. That's what the number the captain ran with in that first press conference. And that came from just a basic misunderstanding and confusion, both in the language barrier and those guys not having a good mental picture. They had driven through what they later described as about one to two miles of heavy oil, about 30 feet wide on the water, you know? And so if you had that mental picture and you knew what 0.4 was metric tons, you would know that those are a discrepancy and you would normally have worked harder to try to resolve that. So they released that number to the press early on this 140 gallon number. What was that like to then deal with once you arrived on scene? I mean, you arrived about nine hours later or so, right? You I mean, you drove because of the fog, and and rightly so. You had no way of knowing whether you'd have been sitting in an airport, uh, you know, waiting for the next 12 hours before you could even take off. And in the meantime, now the, now the media and the public have this 140-gallon number. Yeah, like I said, I, I had never heard that number until the, the joint press conference on day two, morning of day two, at, at the, as you described at Fort Mason. But, uh, uh, you know, we we um, we knew the 10 barrel number was bogus as I was driving up because the command center, my command center in Slidell, Louisiana, was calling and saying, 
uh, hey, they're they're evacuating Alcatraz because of the the odors from the fill from the fuel, and that's when you know right away, hey, there's a considerable quantity of product on the water if you're going to evacuate Alcatraz. Um, and then the the best call I had was they called me and said, hey, have you seen the pictures of the ship on the internet? And I was driving, you know, as fast as I legally was allowed to drive on Interstate Five, and I said, no, I'm I'm driving. I can't see the internet. And he said, we well, need to drive faster. <laughs> <clears throat> so, but I, my story is I drove the legal speed limit uh, on interstate five uh, at, at the time. Um, but yeah, so what, what that does is, is, as you know, in the first early parts of the response as in a unified command or a single command structure, um, you are really re- needing to get the, the confidence of the community, the general public, that that you are in charge and you know what's going on. So credibility is your number one tool early in this response. And the fact that that bogus information that was clearly untrue was given out very early, you know, put all members of Unified Command at an extreme disadvantage. You know, we spent the next six months trying to regain the credibility that was lost in that first four to six hours. Um, and, and there were other confounding issues. Um, when asked about drug and alcohol testing, the Coast Guard gave out some inaccurate information there as well. So there was a lot of public mistrust and, and angst over the fact that, you know, there was thoughts that the Coast Guard wasn't telling the truth. The Coast Guard wasn't competent to give out information. There was a lot of that in day one and two. And ultimately, if you don't recall, on day seven of the response, the captain of the port was relieved of command as a federal on-scene coordinator for the response. Um, and that is a, a spot that nobody wants to be involved with from a unified command perspective, is that an admiral walks in, introduces a new captain, and then escorts the federal on-scene coordinator out of the command post uh, and says, you will have a letter uh, in the next few hours from the commandant designating this new captain as the federal on-scene coordinator um, because normally as you know the captain of the port is the pre-designated federal on-scene coordinator so to make that change required some uh, some notification in writing which we got right away um, and, and a lot of that was based around the fact that the response got off to a horrible start with bad information so he lost the confidence of his command and you know, basically it was career ending for him. It was, um, it was temporary because he was just relieved as FOSC, our federal on-scene coordinator for the response. He remained as captain of the port, I believe for another month or two, or maybe I'm not sure exactly the length of time, but he was eventually um, given the opportunity, as they say, to retire. I think his retirement, um, his retirement letter was handed to him and he signed it, I believe. But, you know, the, the, the unfortunate part is, you know, he was a really good guy. I mean, he was a fantastic guy, really enjoyed working with him. Um, but there was, at that time, you know, things have changed, of course, in the last 14 years. At that time, the Coast Guard, although they had a public information officer, they had a public information team out of, out of Elizabeth City, um, most of their experience in public information was involved with marine casualties, loss of life, helicopters down. Where the Coast Guard comes into the mix, um, 
they are one of the key players in that drama and they're seen as the rescuer. They're not seen as something different. And as most crisis communications experts will tell you, in every story, there's three different characters. There's a victim, there's a villain, a villain, and there's a rescuer. The Coast Guard's experience in public affairs had always been as the rescuer. Now suddenly, you know, they were seen as the villain because they moved towards that part of the triangle. Um, and of course, those of us associated with the response within Unified Command, uh, you know, are all, as I like to say, we're all ankle, ch ankle bracelet chained together in Unified Command. If somebody jumps down the well, you go with them. <laughs> but, um, you know, certainly the Coast Guard has, has learned a lot and it's an incredibly different organization today than it was in 2007. Um, but uh, it was hard to convince him that his, his, his number one duty was to stand up in front of those microphones and cameras and be the leader of the response, that the technical response would continue with the people in the field, but that, you know, he needed to prepare, we needed to, to prep for those. Um, he kind of shot from the hip on some of those press conferences because he was very confident in his technical knowledge, um, which in turn cost him his job. Well, as you've pointed out to me many times, oil spill response is complicated. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of moving parts. No incident uh, mirrors the one that came before it. And we just have to be really careful. And the Coast Guard is at a disadvantage in that they are transferring from station to station every, every two to three years uh, into different responsibilities and to be good in the incident management world and oil spill response is is really a, a full-time and a full-time gig and uh, I feel for them because I watch new people come in and out of districts all the time and there's a there's a pretty steep learning curve and I don't think people realize what are what are potential risk to their career uh, an oil spill has the potential to be no, you're right, Dan. And, and certainly current captains of the ports have a gr much greater experience today than, than they did in 2007 with a more rounded capability um, and, and specifically in public affairs and community involvement, being part of the overall community, not just the maritime community, but the overall community. Um, and and it's, it's tough. In today's world, there is no good thing that can happen to you as a Coast Guard captain of the port in during an oil spill, the best you can hope for is you get out of that without getting, you know, without losing your job or you get out of there unscathed. There's no upside. There's literally no upside um, for you uh, in the Coast Guard if you're a captain of the port and you have a major response. Um, as, and, that, and that's a tough place to be. And it, it makes you have to think really hard um, about how you're going to handle that. And I know those guys probably stay awake at night thinking those things sometimes. Um, just being a QI for, you know, 700 ships back in the day um, when you're on duty and you're just waiting for the phone to ring, whether it's a, a tanker that's got an engine room fire off New York or it's an oil spill or it's, you know, 75 guys calling in with QI notification drills in one night. Um, you know, that's, um, it's a, it's a, whenever that phone rings, you know, you have to um, have to hope, as I say, 
Hope is a strategy, just not a good one. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a good one. But there were some bright spots to the Costco Busan response and the the uh, recovery rates for the Osros was one of them. In spite of this initial low spill volume estimate, the Osros really performed very well. In spite of the fact that it it was really foggy and and you know they couldn't go full speed to get get out there. You were in contact with both NRCES and MSRC as that was going out. Tell me about their initial response. Well, I think if you look at the um, the fact that I, I think if I recall correctly, about a third of the spilled volume was recovered on water, um, which is a remarkably high percentage for any spill. Uh, and given the the complexity of the physical environment inside San Francisco Bay, and Dan, you've you've been there, you've you've sailed there, so you know the currents and the tides there are extremely challenging on a on a sunny day, um, certainly more so on a foggy day. Um, most of that recovery, of course, happened after day one um, when the fog was was cleared, and we weren't hampered by fog an awful lot after that initial morning. Um, but I will tell you, the guys, the guys out there on the water took it upon themselves with direction from the air, you know, tactical direction from helicopter operations um, to line up in the areas that they knew where oil would come together in tide rips uh, and sit on those places when the t before the tide turned and knowing that's where the oil was going to be, you know, in the next cycle. That's the only way you're going to recover that kind of oil. Um, the the kind of advantage of a complex oceanography is that you do have these converging currents that will help bring spread oil back together um, that's bad news for birds of course but it's good news for skimmers um, i think there were about 2500 birds that were um that were killed from the spill um which is unfortunate um but given the the the, the population of waterfowl and and, and marine shorebirds and things in San Francisco, it's, we're probably fortunate there wasn't a larger death than there was. Um, but yeah, the guys on the boats, I mean, you know, you were with MSRC, you, you were probably out there. Those guys did fantastic work. They stayed in oil, they uh, knew, the, knew the environment, they lined up on oil when it appeared, and as soon as it dispersed and, and, and moved apart, they went and found other places to skim where there was heavier oil. So it's, it's purely the fact that guys in the field make good operational decisions. And that's a, that's the bottom line when you when you're in the command post and you're putting together an incident command or an incident action plan, you have to keep in mind in the tactics meeting and later when you're writing those 204s, give those guys in the field some flexibility. Don't define their jobs and their roles so tightly that they can't make good operational decisions without going against what you put in that incident action plan. So I, I think that's key. And what, and what we did with the on water groups, uh, in those 204s was basically assigned them an overall geographical area and said, find oil and skim it. We didn't tell them where, we didn't tell them at what speed, we didn't tell them what kind of skimmers. We just said, find oil and recover it. And uh, and that was the directions that we're given. And it gave the guys flexibility uh, to move around those locations uh, and skim in the in the heaviest concentrations. Yeah, and we had a really good guy. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, he wasn't an MSRC guy who was our aerial observer who was also up there giving tactical direction. Do you remember who that was? 
Yeah, actually, it's Mark Robel, Mark from uh, Ship Services in Southern California. Yeah, Mark is uh, is is a uh, kind of jumped in on that and uh, has a lot of experience on the water himself. Uh, so it's good to have a, a person who is a maritime person in the air, you know, and and knows and looks at currents a lot. Um, yeah, so Mark was given great direction to those guys. Yeah, it made a it made a huge difference. And those big Marco Belt skimmers, I mean, they were they were in the oil they love. They were in that heavier oil, and they really did a big job, a great job. You know, some of the the, the uh, crews were joking that the you know they loaded those cargo tanks up so high that the the oil was actually in a, a hump coming out through the the top of the tank. I mean, they couldn't they literally couldn't get any more without it flowing onto the the deck. They had they had so much oil. Yeah, and like after day four and five, I think you could have picked up oil with pitchforks. It was, you know, it was it was that kind of consistency. The other issue in Costco Busan that is actually really interesting was the issue of volunteers. I mean, this is maybe the most interesting response issue because the correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the area plan said, "Nope, not doing it. Under no circumstances are we ever going to use volunteers." period. But well, that is not what it turned out to be. Right. And I think if I could step just back, you're, you're right. This became a bellwether event for redefining how we use volunteers, both convergent volunteers and trained volunteers. So yes, there were volunteers used during Costco Busan under both of those categories. Certainly the California Wildlife Care Network and those folks that were doing wildlife response had trained volunteers that did miraculous work, fantastic jobs, bringing birds from six different counties, um, you know, back into the treatment centers and getting and getting things done. Um, but the real issue was these convergent volunteers. And you're right, the area community plan at the time said that you will not use volunteers for recovery of oil on shorelines. But when you're in a situation that the, the seven counties around San Francisco Bay are beating down your door uh, because they feel that the spill response was ineffective, untruthful, slow with information, um, you succumb to some pressure. And the Coast Guard, of course, was under that greatest pressure because they were seen as the as a federal on-scene coordinator, which they were, but they also were seen as part of the problem because of the misinformation early on. So what you will see, two things you'll see, first of all, as the QI and my client being the shipping company, my first job is to try to shield them or protect them from anything that could put them in the situation where they have unlimited liability. Certainly, you know, the liabilities are limited under the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Um, and there are some ways to lose that limitation. One is to not follow orders of the federal on-scene coordinator uh, one is also to respond inconsistent or in a pop opposition to the area contingency plan. So the first thing you'll see if, if you ever come across one of the incident action plans from Costco Busan is that on the actual unified command signature cover page, there's actually a note just below the three signature blocks that says the Coast Guard ordered the responsible party to put responders on every beach immediately. So that was an answer to the fact that, of course, within a typical plan, you would have shoreline impact, you would have shoreline cleanup assessment teams that would go out and do scat, as you know, on those on those beach segments, 
that would then define define the priorities, the techniques, and the and and how you would then approach that oiling. That process was turned upside down because the Coast Guard was under so much pressure. They ordered us essentially. We mobilized 700 beach cleanup workers from around the country in about 72 hours, and they were on beaches in PPE um, within that time. And uh, so you had beaches that were being cleaned up before they ever had any kind of shoreline cleanup assessment team analysis done, which was counter to the area plan. Um, so now get to the volunteers point. Um, in the liaison group, as we said, there were seven counties and some of the counties were much more active than others. Um, the one with the most pressure being placed was of course County and City of San Francisco. They have large, large expanses of sandy beaches on the coastal side of San Francisco. And they had probably thousands to tens of thousands of people calling them wanting to help. And so they were under a lot of pressure. The, the volunteer plan was put together um, and most of the counties participated at least initially. Now Marin County, um, which is some of the most environmentally sensitive uh, environments from a standpoint of politics, Marin County's representative knew the area plan. He was the only one that opted out. He said, we are not gonna respond that in, inconsistent with the area plan. And so Marin County opted out of that program. Um, as the RP, my goal was to try to protect the client, protect that limited, that unlimited liability, which also would be involved with volunteers who are not employees. You're gonna lose the work comp limitations of your liability as well. So we put together a plan where the RP would simply provide the logistical support for shoreline cleanup throughout the response, regardless if it was contracted, uh, RP funded response, or it was volunteer funded response. So as the RP, we were responsible for getting um, roll off containers for oily debris and all the PPE and supplies they needed to, to, to basically suit up those volunteers to put them on beaches that had oil. The state of California agreed to do their initial HAZWOPER training, the one-time four-hour training. The state had a curriculum that they had used, I believe, for other times in the past. So they actually brought folks together and the state of California then certified their training, which the RP was not going to do as well. The very first weekend of the response, there was an enormous turnout of volunteers, both organized, trained, and untrained. Um, and uh, that activity was very, very strong on that first Saturday. Um, and of course, volunteers wearing Tyvek suits on beaches in California, even in November, um, which is probably mid 70s to low 80 degrees Fahrenheit, um, those folks aren't gonna work an eight hour day like your contractors are. So those numbers dropped off dramatically when they realized they had to wear booties and gloves and Tyvek suits and they were walking around picking up tar balls that were the size of, you know, green peas or smaller. There wasn't this mass of oil that they thought they were going to find and, and do, you know, really great stuff and pick up, you know, enormous amounts of oil and then go home and feel great about themselves. Um, that just wasn't the case. There was no dramatic oil on the beach. There was no dramatic difference from where they cleaned it up and where they didn't. Um, by Sunday, I think we had maybe one in three volunteers show up. And then further from that, 
the issue was primarily over. There were no volunteers after that first weekend. Um, as the RP, we wrote a 204 for volunteers, every incident action plan. We announced it in the planning meeting. We asked the volunteer coordinator how many, how many folks they would have for the next operational period and where they needed PPE. And they would say, we have no volunteers. So after the first weekend, your volunteer effort is pretty much gone. People go back to work. Um, so it's not like volunteers are going to keep showing up in consistent numbers. They're very hard to manage, very hard to plan for. Um, and, and so that's, that's one of the challenge even today on, on managing volunteers. But um, we did have a volunteer program. As I said, they were used um, primarily that first weekend, and then it was discontinued. Um, from the standpoint of the counties. The pressure head was off. People didn't see a giant slick of oil a la Exxon Valdez or American Trader or, or one of those spills where you had, you know, big chunks of oil on the beach. So do you have any specific lessons learned from Costco Busan that you want to share, especially from the incident commander's chair? Lessons you want to give me as a potential incident commander for my next spill? Yeah, Dan, there's a lot of lessons I think learned from, from the Costco Busan. Um, most of them I think have been learned um, since then, you know, gradually over time. Yeah, as I said, primary is as an incident commander, you have to understand that at least 50% of your job has to be the face of the response. Um, you know, you've got section chiefs in your organization that are gonna manage the technical parts of the ICS process whether it's the planning chief, whether it's the operations section chief, um, you know, your job is to ensure that the unified command is a functioning triad or larger of, of conflicting responsible individuals that have different priorities and conflicts potentially to manage that group as a unified command and, and try to make sure that you put a consistent face forward and a consistent message of transparency and truth um, out to the public. Uh, I think that's your, honestly, I think that's your biggest job as incident commander. Um, others may have different opinions. Um, you're not technically managing the response typically, but you're, you're need to be seen and seen as a solution, not a problem. And I think that's, that's the key. Um, what you need to be look, your appearance, your demeanor is there to be um, one of those rescuers, not the villain. You have to be able to make the villain the oil and move yourself as a responsible party and the incident commander more towards the rescuer part of that story. How much leeway do you give your public information officer to tell that story versus how much do they need to come to you for permission to speak? Well, you know, technically any information must be approved by unified command. Um, you know, that's the technicalities of, of incident command system. Um, but I mean, the PIO needs to understand and, and come to you with messaging. Um, but I think if you have, if you make sure that you have information that you know is factually true, that the PIO is able to give out answers to that information or questions surrounding that information that is known and agreed upon as factually true. Um, but the PIO cannot, you know, freelance is, as you would think, um, and, and try to answer questions they don't really have answers to. And they have to understand that I don't know is a perfectly valid answer. Now, to get to it, you're going to have to determine what's the experience level of your PIO. 
if you've got someone who's got 20 years experience in managing crises and or oil spill response that is a experienced PIO, I would give them a lot of leeway. Um, the case in Costco Busan, the Coast Guard PIO was brand new. She had just come out of training, had never been on an incident yet. Um, and some of the state PIO folks were in the same boat. Um, the PIO that the company brought out from a third party um, was completely ineffective. He, he sat in the JIC in the Joint Information Center. And I think he proofread the Coast Guard press releases was about all he did. So as the, as the incident commander, you may have to take on more of that public information role. Um, people want to talk to the public information off. They, they also want to talk to the incident commander. Um, you know, when, when something bad happens, who do you want to see on TV? You want to see the CEO. You don't want to see the chief financial officer. You don't want to see the, you know, the operations manager. You want to see the CEO and the CEO has to speak for the company. And so again, yeah, give your PIO some leeway based on their experience, um, but make sure you know what their experience is. I will add too, Dan, that a lot of these folks learned a lot in Costco Busan. What you don't hear about is the spill that happened exactly two years later from a ship in San Francisco Bay. Um, didn't hit a bridge, but resulted in a spill into San Francisco Bay. About two year anniversary of Costco Busan, which was still which was handled a lot differently. Um, and so people really have never heard of that spill. And a lot of the reason is because um, the lessons that were learned two years prior were still fresh in most of all those people's minds. Well, it made a big splash too, didn't? Uh, didn't Congress open a hearings at the Presidio with, on like day six or day seven? I remember Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco at the time, and I remember listening to testimony that he was giving, and he was, you know, they had just gone through several years of um, uh, emergency management planning, all hazard planning, based on. Uh, lessons coming out of 9-11 and to find that they really didn't have any idea what was going on in the oil spill world that uh, had really taken them by surprise. But uh, can't, it can't have helped that you were under that kind of scrutiny that early on in the response. Yeah, it's that's an issue I think you're, we're going to continue to have, Dan, um, because if you look at the emergency response framework within the country for everything but oil spills, you will see the consistency there is that everything is flows under the Stafford Act and under coordination by counties. And in those responses, counties are the lead until they get state support and the states are the lead until they get federal support. It's really upside down compared to the, the, the way priorities and control is in a unified command for an oil spill where we consider the federal on-scene coordinator typically you know, certainly not, they used to say 51% of the vote, not true. Everyone in that, in that organization's got 33%. But um, the counties that aren't involved in the area planning process don't understand the difference between a Stafford Act led response and an open 90 oil spill. And they are often surprised that they're not in charge uh, and or they continue to try to be in charge when they don't have information, they don't know what the area plan says, they don't know how the interactions and the, uh, and, the, and the group comes together, nor do they have the technical experience to really provide 
much more than logistical support. Um, so that I think that's going to be an ongoing problem, in, except in areas where a, a very strong state agency may encourage county level participation in the area plan. Um, I still don't see a lot of that. I, I still think you see a lot of that in California today um, or in Washington for that matter. I think Washington probably is the best in the country for reaching out to counties and getting involved in the area planning process, but you don't see that everywhere in the country. Um, like I said, it's it's been quite a while ago, so sometimes folks don't think those lessons really apply to today's world. And, and in some ways they're probably a little bit, um, a little matured. Um, certainly post Deepwater Horizon, uh, I think everyone understands the value of public communication as, as a key driver. Um, but I think it's always, uh, it's always nice to go back and, and look at incidents that happened in the past. Um, there are lessons for people to learn from those. And I think you're right. I think if, if people are interested, the NTSB report is actually very good. Um, and there's also a federal on-scene coordinators report out there um, somewhere on the internet probably. But uh, the NTSB report is really, really good. Um, and I'll leave you with one final thing too as the incident commander is that also understand too, when you have uh, conflicting duties with in response to a, a federal investigation, and in addition to your response role, um, in addition to the leading the cleanup, um, those are other areas where you need to make sure that you've got support from either legal counsel or others to deal with that. Um, certainly during Costco Busan, we had US attorneys in the command posts. We had JAG attorneys from the Coast Guard. Um, you know, on top of that, we also had, uh, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California. As you said, Gavin Newsom was the mayor of California, of uh, San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Barbara Boxer, Barbara Feinstein was the head of the Commerce Committee, I think, that funds the Coast Guard. So, you know, she was in the command post. So those high level interactions are important. Um, and then the NTSB investigation, understanding how to operate within a uh, a federal investigation in regards to um, client privilege, security in the command post. People in your command post need to understand that they can talk freely. Um, we had to implement a two-stage security system in the command post at Costco Busan um, to try to keep out um, attorneys who were just wandering around trying to take notes on what people said, you know, as you know. Um, your incident action plan is your legal document. And you'll know as well as anyone, there's a lot of paperwork and discussions and notes that fly around an incident command post that are not in the incident action plan. And the likelihood of finding conflict or things that uh, would be legally damaging is probably pretty high if you let a bunch of attorneys run free um, through the command post. So um, respond to make sure that you limit those problems, make sure your team can talk freely and write things freely without the possibility of self-incrimination um, is probably other piece from, a, from an investigative standpoint. Um, and you will be subpoenaed, you will have depositions and you will probably will end up in an NTSB hearing in Washington, DC. <laughs> You're sure about that? Well, it's, I think it's happened to me. So <laughs> yeah. it happened to you, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Rod did that. Now, now you're scaring me. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go look for a job at McDonald's now. This is no, 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 no. It's, it's, um, it's having, having good legal, having good legal support is important. 
and if and if there is an investigation like that that opens up, having having legal support that understands criminal versus civil liabilities uh, is also a key. Um, <clears throat> if you look back at the NT, NTSB report, you will see that the pilot um, the pilot was convicted. He did serve time. He was federally convicted criminally. Um, and the statute that they love to use for that is the Migratory Waterfowl Act, um, which has criminal penalties for the killing of migratory waterfowl. So he was convicted and served time um, for, for, um, for that as well. And because guess, remember, yeah. the, the, the lawyers that show up may represent the RP. They may, may represent the, the, uh, the insurance company, the, pub, the P&I club is going to bring a legal representation. Those people work for the RP. Those people work for the for the insurance policy. They don't work for you as the incident or protect you as the incident commander in your organization. So um, it's oftentimes important to make sure that you get up front the designation that uh, that uh, if there is a need for legal counsel, that you get the RP to agree that you know the organization as WISMIC uh, has their own legal representation. Well, that's it. Thank you for joining us for the tactics meeting and thank you to Barry McFarland for taking the time out of his schedule to talk to us about his experiences as incident commander on the Costco Busan oil spill. If you have ideas for the show or would like to be a guest, you can email us. The email address is podcast at the tactics meeting dot online. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>